Well, I've edited this down a bit, but on November 14, 1999, uh, Dr. John MacArthur of Grace Community Church said these words as he preached through the Gospel of Luke. Quote, It always amuses me when I see bumper stickers that say, My child is an honor student at such and such school. We can be pretty proud of our children and the fact that they are honor students or that they are good athletes or whatever else. But we may somewhat overestimate their capabilities, at least when compared with true child prodigies or geniuses. Of which then he went on to mention quite a few, the first of which is Jean Louis Cardiac from the 18th century. Jean could recite the alphabet when he was three months old. At the age of four, he read Latin and translated it into English and French. He read Greek and Hebrew, and by the age of six, he was proficient in arithmetic, history, and geography. Just like you, right? And then there was Christian Frederick Heineken. In addition to an astounding faculty for numbers, little Christian reportedly knew how all the principal events related in the Bible by the time he was one. At three, he was conversant with world history, geography, Latin, and French. Then there was maybe the most prestigious of all child prodigies, the very famous Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. At four, he began music lessons with his violinist father, and at six, he was a virtuoso on the violin and harpsichord. Listen to this. He wrote his first symphony at eight, and at 11, he was forced to compose in solitary confinement for the very suspicious Archbishop of Salzburg. He passed that test and was offered the salary job of city concertmaster. At 12, he wrote two operas, and today he is still regarded as one of the world's supreme geniuses. And then there was the 19th century John Stuart Mill. He was the product of an educational experiment that reads like a record of medieval torture. Now, I want all of you homeschoolers to listen carefully here. Feel much better about yourself. His irritable father was a historian and philosopher named James Mill. Now listen here. He forced his son to learn Greek at three, history at four, Latin, geometry, and algebra by eight. By 12, he had read Virgil, Horace, Ovid, Terence, Cicero, Homer, Euripides, Aristophanes, and Demosthenes, all in Greek. <laughs> Think about that. I can barely pronounce those. And then there was Truman Henry Safford. He showed his giftedness at age three when his parents would amuse themselves with his calculating powers. At seven, he studied algebra and geometry, and at nine, he constructed and published an almanac. At ten, he originated a new method for obtaining lunar risings and settings that took one quarter of the time of previous methods known. It was then that he was asked to square the number that is, to multiply a number by itself, right? That number was 365 quadrillion, 365 trillion, 365 billion, 365 million, 365,365 multiplied by itself. He gave the correct answer in less than one minute. He graduated from Harvard at the age of 18. 
And finally, Michael Gross was born in 1954. He astounded his mother by reading aloud to her without any previous instruction. Can you imagine? (laughs) Trying to get away with something and your kid's like, it doesn't say that. (laughs) That would be horrible. (laughs) Uh, He was obviously under-challenged at school at the age of four. And on his first day of kindergarten, he saw a classmate coloring an apple blue and remarked, quote, that's, kind of, that's the kind of approach Picasso would use, end quote. At 10, he moved directly from the fifth grade to Michigan State University. Well, Dr. MacArthur went on to quote and, uh, and talk uh, much more about other child prodigy examples, but I'll save us the embarrassment only to ask the same question he did. Are you thinking about removing that bumper sticker off your car now? Don't run out to your cars just yet. And as much as these amazing uh, examples of history may make us feel a little inadequate, or maybe a lot, no human child has ever compared to the one we'll study today, Jesus of Nazareth. If you are visiting with us this morning, you have joined Capital City Church as we preach our way through the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It has been just a great joy we built up. We spent about six months building up to the birth of Christ that landed and we celebrated on Christmas morning, uh, and we covered that text. We started that series, uh, and it is titled, The Word Became Flesh. Um, We have considered the scandalous nature of the pregnancy of the Virgin Mary and her husband, their arrival in in Bethlehem, their rejection of a humane place to stay, and the birth of Jesus, followed by a celebration of the lowest class of people, the shepherds. We flipped over from the book of Luke to the book of Matthew and found that sometime before Jesus was two years old, Magi arrived in Jerusalem. They stirred up the city, and King Herod and celebrated as the star that they had seen some two years earlier reappeared and led them to Jesus' home. We, uh, they, they then gave Jesus the gifts of a king, and both they and Joseph were warned in dreams to flee the city of Bethlehem because of the fury of King Herod. Then we learned just a couple of weeks ago that Herod died, and the young family moved back to Israel to a humble and obscure little town in the region of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you'll remember back to that sermon, I I, uh, waxed eloquent about how horrible it is to be from the town of Laramie in so many people's minds in our state. I had the great privilege last uh, week of opening the House legislature in, in prayer and in the, at the last day that I did that, I was introducing myself to some of the legislators and, and saying hello and doing all that uh, you do kind of before the work of the day starts. And I introduced myself to a young man, and there was an older gentleman, maybe he's in here this morning, I don't know, standing right behind the young man. And, and I heard that this young man was from Laramie, his name was Ocean, and I thought that was pretty unique. And, and uh, anyway, um, he was from Washington. Now, let me tell you, here's... <laughs> Never mind. Let me tell you, I have... Never mind. I'm not going there. His name was Ocean. He was from Washington. And he also is representing Laramie. And, and so I said, hey, listen, I'm from Laramie, Wyoming. And the older gentleman standing right behind me literally out loud said, oh, 
Laramie, Wyoming. It's just like that. So if you were in the sermon, you'll understand that. If you missed the sermon, go back and listen to it. It was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, anyway, the point of the sermon and Jesus coming from Nazareth, this very obscure place, nobody knew of it. History doesn't uh, record it really at all other than what we have in our text. And we studied that together. And beloved, it is here we flip from Matthew 2 back to Luke chapter 2, verse 40 where we'll see that like us in our childhood years, Jesus continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. We're going to land there. We're going to spend our whole day today just in that single verse. And and I want us to think about today the humanity of Jesus and the importance of us understanding and reading as we read our text that Jesus truly was human. Looking at verse 40 is interesting to note that much like um, the rest of the Bible, many years transpire between uh, just a few verses. In this case, Jesus was likely around three or four years old when he moved to Nazareth back from Egypt. That means nine or ten years transpire between verse 40 and verse 42, which reveals that Jesus was 12 years old. And it is easy to move quickly past verse 4 as a a transition verse because it is a transition verse. It is moving us toward this story that only Luke covers and more about that next week. I think it's really important anytime a, a gospel writer pulls out a detail that none of the others do, we need to pause and we need to think about why is it, right, that Luke, inspired by the Spirit, wrote these things down. We're not going to get them today. We're going to focus on this one transition verse, verse 40, and on the humanity of Jesus. This first clause in that verse says that Jesus continued to grow and become strong. Jesus continued to grow and become strong. This continued growth speaks of the humanity of Jesus. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus did not come into being as an adult. He didn't come into being as an adult. Have you ever thought about this? If Adam and Eve or in heaven, I, I think they probably will be. Are you just curious to know, like, do they have a belly button? Right? You ever think about those things? I mean, you should think about these things. They're very serious topics. Right? I don't know. I, I just want to know. I'm going to ask because that's just the way I am. But they're not, Jesus was not like Adam and Eve, right? He did not come into being as an adult, as a mature person. He was born and he was continuing here, Luke says, to grow in strength. And he, like every baby, he needed to be fed and he needed to be changed. In fact, he was a human. And humans, right, begin as infants and then they grow into children and then they grow into monsters and then they grow into adults, I get to say that now because my, I have my last teenager. He's back working in the sound booth this morning. He's 19. He's going to graduate, right, Matthew, into adulthood? No longer monsterhood. Right? Jesus was a human. He went through the stages of being a human. He was a baby who was completely reliant upon his parents for protection, for food, all the things that we would experience. Jesus is truly human. Beloved, there are really no words when we think theologically about topics like the Trinity and God becoming flesh and the person of Jesus. There's 
really no words that can truly express the pre-existent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God in the person of Jesus Christ becoming a finite human being. We can talk about it, and we should talk about it, and we should think through it, and it's very easy to come up with some heretical idea. It takes a lot of careful thinking, and, and, and what we know without any shadow of a doubt in the study of Scripture is that there is some level of mystery that exists in that. That the, the all-eternal, all-powerful God comes to earth and limits himself in humanity, in the, in the most horrible and humiliating of circumstances, and grows up in a humiliating town obscure to anybody's knowledge. All we can do as we consider that mystery is to peer into the perfect Word of God and say what it says. Nothing more and nothing less. We have to be okay with that, beloved. Can I just warn you? I hope, I don't think this is over your heads whatsoever, what we're committed to as Capital City Church is sola scriptura. We put it right here on the pulpit. It's the first thing I had done four years ago. Hey, rabbit trail. <laughs> Today starts the fifth year of ministry at Capital City Church. Val and I started, uh, we came over here four years ago and started, Capital started the revitalization of Capital City Church. How fun. I just had that thought. Let's hope that I don't take a rabbit trail off my rabbit trail. But listen, what we did, one of the first things we did was, was a, a gentleman in the church asked if he could build a pulpit for me. I asked him to do so. I asked him to put Sola Scriptura on the front of that because it is our commitment as a church, as leaders in the church, to teach what the Word of God says, not to go outside of it, not to try and make up some logical path to make salvation make sense and man's will make sense and all these other things to make sense. We just want to teach what God has said. And this right here, as we study the humanity of Jesus, is nothing short of a mystery. It's a mystery. We can try and put words to it. We can try and understand it. We'll look at some of these texts today. But it's okay to just leave that tension out there. The God of eternity the creator of all things, became a baby. It's a wild thing. So we look into the text, nothing more and nothing less. And as we do that, we see the eternal, that the eternal Jesus became a finite human. This series is titled, and it's a sub-series, I think we'll be done with this sub-series uh, next week. Um, but it's titled, The Word Became Flesh, because of what the Apostle John wrote about Jesus in the opening words of his gospel. Listen to the eternality of Jesus Christ, who John calls the Word. In John 1, verses 1 through 3, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word, notice here, was God. He was in the beginning with God. God, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And who was that word? Just a few verses later, John writes in John 1.14, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. So it is, beloved, that Jesus existed in eternity and was, in fact, creator God who became flesh. When we turn back to Genesis 1.1 and we read, in the beginning, God created, and God said, let there be light. It is Jesus Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at what is mostly considered, and I believe to be right, an early Christian hymn. And like most songs, they're designed to stick in our minds so that we can remember right things. And this is an early Christian hymn that the Apostle Paul um, is writing to the church, and, and let me say this, in Philippians, the apostle is dealing with selfishness and disunity in the church at Philippi. Although it is not his intention at all to teach about the humanity of Jesus, which we're going to pull a little bit out of that today, we get some God-inspired information on how it is that this mystery that Christ became a human being happened. It's right here in the midst of this song, Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you might underline, if you've made made your way to your text, the, the word was. It's past tense, right? We understand that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed, past tense, right here, a very important clause, in the form of God. He existed, past tense, in the form of God. John is saying in John 1, 1, right? He is God, the creator God. And although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now pay attention here. This is the point of which I want to draw out of here. But he emptied himself. Now volumes upon volumes are written on those three words that Jesus emptied himself. God himself, creator God, emptied himself. And what did he do? He took on the form of a bondservant, doulos, a slave, right? A slave is one who does not own their own will. They do what they're told. He goes from being creator God who speaks the universe into existence to, I'll only do what I'm told. And being made Look there in the likeness of men. Now, as I said, it's not Paul's intention to teach the humanity of Christ here. However, we get to peek into, do we not, the eternal God being made in the likeness of men. Think on that if you can. (laughs) Don't run to mystery too fast. Work on it. Think about it. How did this happen? It says that Jesus emptied himself and was made. That is, right, in the passive tense in the Greek, right? He emptied himself, and then he was made in the likeness of men. Sounds pretty humbling, right? Made in the likeness of men to become a bond servant. This cannot mean being emptied that He is no longer God, and we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But if Paul meant that he was no longer God, he would be in opposition to to what Jesus claimed to be about himself, and that was that he was God very 
God. The Gospel of John makes it very clear with all the I am statements. Most of them are represented right here in the stained glass of the church. I am. I am that I am. Coming out of Exodus 3, when, when Moses is asking, who should, who should I tell the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, sent me? I am that I am. Jesus' response to the religious, religious leaders, they are pressing him. I am. And they get it, right? Because they pick up stones to stone him every time he uses the, the terminology. Jesus claimed to be God. But he is made in the likeness of man. So as to the mystery of God becoming a man, it is best to understand that Jesus in eternity you might write this down. I'm going to repeat it a couple times. It's really important to the emptiness here of himself. Jesus, in eternity, voluntarily surrendered. Get that down. Voluntarily surrendered. That's the he emptied himself. The independent exercise of his divine attributes. Let me say it again. Jesus, in eternity, voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He did not become non-God, he voluntarily walked away from his independent right to use those attributes as God. What a humble thing to do. And what did he then do? Become a bondservant, a slave. That is one who was owned by another and did not have the right to do their own will, but the will of the one who owned them. In this case, we understand that to be the Father. So, Think with me about Jesus' humanity. He is a real human. He has given up the independent right to use his divine attributes. Has anybody ever seen Bruce Almighty? That's the opposite. A human getting the opportunity to be God, right? (laughs) Things don't go so well for Bruce. So the miracles, beloved, that we see Jesus perform in the New Testament are not because of his divinity. Hear me say that again. The miracles that we see Jesus doing in the New Testament are not because of his divinity, although he is divine. He voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of those divine attributes. He was able to do miracles because he had been given authority by God through the leading of the Holy Spirit to do them. Don't believe me? Let's survey just the book of John for just quickly. And I had to take some out because my sermon was too long. And it always saddens me on Sunday morning when I have to do that. Let's survey just John about Jesus operating according to not his will, but the will of the Father. John chapter 5, verse 19. I'll have it up here before, uh, so you can just read along with me. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do how much? Nothing of himself. Now, Jesus is either lying, it's either hyperbole, or he's trying to mislead us. How much can Jesus do on his own? How much can Jesus do on his own? Nothing. This is what Jesus says of himself. I don't think he's lying. I don't think he's deceiving. I don't think he's manipulating. I don't think he's politicking. He is a human. He's saying simply, I can do nothing on my own. We might be wise to think that of ourselves Two, right? Nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. John 5.30. I can do how much? 
Nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is a human. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. John 12, 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Now, as we think back to Philippians 2 and in this wonderful song that the Spirit of God is reminding Paul to write down, right? Jesus gave up. He voluntarily gave up the independent right to use his divine attributes. And he only became a slave, a bondservant. I'll do what I see the Father doing. I will say what I see the Father saying. We read it and we think, oh, Jesus, the divine Jesus. Yes, amen, divine. But in true wisdom and true humanity, he is relying upon the Spirit of God and His life and, the, and God the Father, the written Scriptures, to know what to do. True wisdom. It's for this reason that Jesus can say this in John 12, 44 and 45. He who believes in me does not believe in me. Just stop for a second. Right? Now wait. Wait a, wait a second. What did you just say? <laughs> he who believes in me does not believe in me? But in him who sent me, but in him who sent me, verse 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. The writer of Hebrews is going to wax eloquent in chapter 1, uh, telling us that Jesus is the express image of God. For us humans, the only Jesus that they were ever going to see, it, it, the only God that they were ever going to see was the express image of God in Jesus Christ. He is the true servant. He is the true slave. He, he gave up the independent right of his attributes for you and for me and for every sinner who would call upon his name. Imagine that. The humility of God. Why have I taken this much time to show you these statements by Jesus? Because it is absolutely necessary for us to see and understand that Jesus, even in the miracles, even in the miracles which our minds and hearts and Everything runs to in the text, right? It sticks out like a sore thumb, so to say. But we must pause and go, wait a second. In Jesus' humility, in Jesus' willingness to submit, in Jesus' willingness to follow, in Jesus' willingness to obey the Father, these things are happening. They're happening. He is a human. He is truly human. The miracles that we see Jesus performing are not because of the independent use of his divine attributes. Rather, they are a result of obedience to the Father. In his humanity, he did what the Father told him to do, which made him very wise. Which made him very wise. I don't have time to get into all these, but I hope to do this as we move our way through the study in the life of Christ and Dr. Doug Bookman, one of my favorite seminary professors, we had the great privilege of having him here a few weeks or maybe months ago now. Um, 
He loves to point out the humanity and the divinity of Jesus and the relationship between Jesus and God in the story of Lazarus. You remember Lazarus, right? Lazarus is dead. Jesus waits for him to die. They're begging him to to get up there and to save his life before he dies. And then he purposely shows up kind of late when he can't even uh, get into the tomb. It's four days. The body's smelly. We hear all these details, right? And Dr. Bookman makes much of this, and I think it's something for us to learn much about, and that, and that is this, that Jesus says, show me where Lazarus is. I'm here to heal him, but I don't know where he's at. Right? We tend to think he knows all things all the time. He, he, he's, he's, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's not in his humanity. He is just a human. And, and as much as he knew, he knew that God had called him to raise Lazarus from the dead. But then he has to stop and humbly say, I don't know where he's at. I hope this is helpful for you. So we can identify with our Savior. So we understand that we can look at him as a picture of how to live an obedient life and how important it is to know the Father and to to take our cues from the obedience uh, of which we would find in the text, right? To look to it as true wisdom and true humility. And speaking of that wisdom, not only did the child Jesus have to grow and become strong, but notice verse 40 says that He was increasing in wisdom, increasing in wisdom. Friends, I want to have you maybe underline the word wisdom there, and maybe it's normal to you or or whatever, but I aim here for just a second to make that word stick out to you in the context of a 12-year-old boy. Are you tracking? Are you with me? Underline it. Highlight it. Maybe even write a little note over to your margin that says, it does not say knowledge that he's growing in, it says wisdom. These words matter. Most kids before the age of 12 are increasing in knowledge, right? We are learning our ABCs. We are learning syntax and grammar and and all of those things, and we are memorizing all of that that stuff. But Jesus is increasing in wisdom. If Luke wanted to say that Jesus was learning the ABCs or uh, the Greek noun structures, if you had the privilege of taking Greek or Latin and nominative and genitive and dative and accusative cases and all the verb tenses, um, he could have just used the Greek word oida. It is the word translated in your Bible as knowledge. Knowledge. She's growing in knowledge. And that would kind of make sense for somebody who's between the age of 3 and 12 that they're learning those types of thing, but it's not what he says. He, uh, he, he doesn't even use the word that is also translated into English, uh, gnosko, which is an experiential type of knowledge. That Jesus says, well, he's kind of growing up. You might expect to see gnosko there, that he's experiencing and learning like a 12-year-old would be experiencing and learning. No, Luke does not use either of those words. He uses the word sophia. It's translated as wisdom. In our text, the best Koine Greek dictionary that's available today, it's shortened to BDAG, defines Sophia this way the capacity to understand. Pause for just a second. The capacity to understand. Jesus then has a capacity to understand, but here's the conjunction and 
function accordingly. A great capacity for understanding and, conjunction, function accordingly. We often hear it said this way, and I believe rightfully so, that wisdom is applied knowledge. It's not just knowing something, it is now what am I going to do with that thing? It's, it's having the right knowledge, but responding appropriately, doing appropriately. You've studied any of the wisdom literature, you'll know that it is going to encourage you over and over that the beginning of wisdom is the what? Fear of the Lord. True wisdom is wrapped up in reverence for the Lord and reverence and understanding you are not God. And what God has said should be followed and therefore, in that fear, in that following, in that doing, in that gaining of knowledge and applying, you're acting in wisdom. I've already mentioned this, but if you're in here and you've ever been the parent of a teenager, or maybe you're a teenager now, you'll have experienced your parents um, maybe being what we might call hypocrites. <laughs> I've heard this before, believe me. I love my boys. But... Right? And they're often right. They have heard us teaching them and telling them right knowledge. But then, as time goes on in our sinful natures, we begin to do the wrong things. And then they do the wrong things, and we say, don't do the wrong things! <laughs> and then immediately they're like, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> right? And hypocrisy is, it is that. It's the opposite of wisdom. Right? It's having the right knowledge, but not acting appropriately. Not doing what the right knowledge says. And so Jesus here is, he is increasing in his ability to both understand and function accordingly. He had wisdom, biblical wisdom. Hearing from the Lord and obeying what he says, I've often said that the difference between a cold or a lukewarm Christian and one who is setting their world on fire for Christ is how they read their Bible. <laughs> if you pick it up in the morning and the idea is, well, I got to get this thing read and I got to get through this chapter or whatever your goal is and you check the little box to make your, your soul feel a little better about, right? There's a legalist in all of us, right? <laughs> We've all done this, right? We check the little box and we say, ah, I read my Bible today. I think we've missed the point. We've gained understanding, maybe. But are we reading it with a hard attitude that says, Oh God, I am a wicked sinner. I desperately need what the bread of life has to say for my life. And, and if I don't read a half a verse today, but you convict me of sin, would you please graciously Help me to walk into the obedience that I need in my life. Give me a half a verse read and applied and walked in and obeyed over a Bible memorized any day of the week. That is wisdom. It's wisdom. That's why I love being around brand new believers. Amen? I love it. Because they're just asking these questions. Well, how do I walk like this? How do I do this? How should I do this? How do I respond to this? What, what happens when, when somebody lies about me? What happens if somebody steals from me? What All the millions of questions that come. I love that. What are they saying? I need wisdom. I need wisdom. I need wisdom. How do I handle this as a Christian? 
Beloved, if you've grown cold in your walk, it's because you're just checking the box. Return, pray, ask the Lord, help me to walk in wisdom. Amen? So, beloved, where most kids from the ages of 3 to 12 are learning alphabets and words and grammar and syntax, Luke gives us the impression that Jesus is increasing in his capacity to understand and function accordingly. He was increasing in wisdom. You might push back and say, if you're thinking, as I did my way through these texts, uh, I thought, well, you know, all kids are increasing in wisdom at some level, some faster than the others, and I agree. However, as we will study next week, Lord willing, Jesus is clearly functioning in a way that is above and beyond his peers. Take a look down if you're back in Luke chapter 2 from Philippians at verses 47 and 48. They say this, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So just stop for a second. (laughs) Jesus is up on the temple mount teaching and interacting with the teachers. And you just pause for a moment, maybe try and place yourself there. We'll talk again more about this next week. But uh, his mother and his father show up as they've been looking for him. And, and there's great crowds. If you ever have the, the chance to go to Israel, I so encourage you to do it. Um, the Temple Mount is huge. And they say uh, that you could fit nearly 200,000 people on there if you pack them in there. And this is the setting that these Jewish rabbis are coming and they're teaching and, and people are listening. And, and unlike the American culture, and this is begrudging to me in my mind, we sit in class after class after class with hardly ever an opportunity to ask a question. Just take in this knowledge. Just listen to me. That is not the Jewish culture at all. It is all this rhetoric, this back and forth, this asking questions. And how many of you know that when you're asking questions, you're learning, your mind is engaged? Well, that's what's going on, and that's how the Jews taught, and that's how the rabbis taught. They present a question they likely know the answer to, but the idea is, let's get these young people thinking and talking. And Jesus is here, and what does the text say? But they are amazed, and not just the teachers, but everybody who's listening on all this rhetoric The thousands gathered around are looking at this 12-year-old thinking, what is going on here? Listen to this kid. The next verse, Mary and Joseph arrive when they, verse 48, saw him. They were astonished. Semicolon. Stop there for just a second. They were astonished. What are they thinking? I think it intimates at least that maybe Jesus hadn't done a lot of talking to this point or, or speaking, and, and he was probably maybe just quiet and introverted and learning the trade of being a carpenter, uh, like a stonemason probably of today. And um, all of a sudden, they, after three days of searching, they find their son up on the Temple Mount during the Passover where the City swells to two and a half, three million people come into the city for Passover. And who's on the center stage with this 12-year-old boy? And everyone's amazed, and so are his parents. So I think that Luke means for us to pause with that word wisdom. And inasmuch as Jesus is human, like you and I, and we've pointed out here, he has an ability like a child prodigy, 
to have wisdom. And why would he have that? The virgin birth. He has no indwelling sin in him like you and I. He has no, no thing that is jamming up the signals. He's increasing in wisdom. He's growing and becoming strong quite naturally. But it seems here as if Luke is pointing out his uncanny ability to learn and apply all that he had learned in ways well beyond his age. We know that in eternity, Jesus voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. So it's not divinity that's speaking. It's his humanity, but it's humanity uh, um, um, uh, unhindered by sin. Not only was Jesus, before the age of 12, growing and becoming strong and increasing in wisdom, but the text says that the grace of God was upon him. The grace of God was upon him. The word grace is charis in the Greek, and uh, it simply means a gift. We often hear that mercy is not receiving what you deserve, and grace is receiving what you do not deserve. And that is what the word usually represents. The grace of God was upon Jesus. But it is not always used that way. The the word, the Greek word charis is used 155 times in the New Testament, and 122 of those carry this sense of receiving something that you did not deserve, grace, a gift. And in the biblical sense, that refers to the salvation from God's coming wrath on every sinner. The Apostle Paul uses grace this way in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, saying this, It'll be up on the text on the screen here for you. For by grace you have been saved. There's our word, right? I've highlighted it for you, charis. It is by grace. It is a gift. It is mercy to you, right? You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a what? Gift of God. Verse 9. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. Stop most people who call themselves Christian and ask them why they get to heaven, and I'm telling you, By and large, the answer you're going to receive is that I think I've done enough good things. They have not understood the gospel of grace. They've not understood it. There is nothing, not a result of works, no good that you did, no bad that you did. Just cry out for mercy. That is how grace is used. Cry out, repent, turn from your sin. Cry out for God. You might say in your mind, well, I don't deserve that. Amen. That's what grace means. 122 times, that's how the Bible uses the word grace. That's not how it's used here as it pertains to Jesus. It's not. The grace of God that was upon Jesus was not a gift for salvation from God's coming wrath on sin because Jesus never sinned. That is why 11 times out of those 155 times that charis is used or grace, the word is translated as favor, as favor. The favor of God was upon him. As a matter of fact, if you turn back to Luke chapter 1, I think it's verse 27 and 28, there you'll see uh, that, that Luke uses grace, but it gets translated as favor as it pertains to Mary. And the angel is speaking to Mary, O oh, you charist one, 
you favored one. There is the word. So the ESV did a good job, I believe, here, and probably a better job in discerning that they should probably translate the word as favor. The favor of God was upon Jesus as he was growing. Amen? God had his eye on him. You'll hear people say uh, of, of a child, he is the apple of my eye. As we move through the text, we're going to hear this language that gets developed. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He is the apple of God's eye. He is the only one. And begotten does not refer to as a beginning. We've already read that in our text. The idea is that he is the only one, the special one. In Hebrews 11, we, we learn and can see that, uh, that Abraham speaks of Isaac as his only begotten. Well, he's not the only begotten. He wasn't the only son. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even the first son. Right? The idea is the apple of my eye. Jesus had favor. Amen? So it is, beloved, that we must rightly understand the human nature of Jesus. As we continue to work through the life of Christ, I'll do my best to point out the reality of Jesus' humanity every time that I can because I think it goes against our nature. We are always just so attracted to the shiny divinity moments. The matter of fact is, though, if Jesus is not truly human, then the coming of, uh, of God's wrath on unrepentant sinners has not been satisfied, meaning that everyone in here would still eternally suffer. Are you tracking with me? Jesus had to be human, or you don't have a sacrifice for your sin. Tracking with me? <laughs> he had to be human. He relied on the Father, but he had to be human. Otherwise, you have no sacrifice for your sin. He's just some deity that showed up and he can't identify with you. And this is why the writer of Hebrews is going to go on to say that Jesus was tempted in every single way that you have been or ever will be tempted. It was real for him. This is real as it was for Adam before he fell in the garden. He was tempted with sin to, to turn away from the Lord, to eat from the tree. Jesus is tempted just like you and I are. But in his humanity, he said, I will not. Wow. For you and I. Amen? Amen. The righteous, sinless human being, Jesus, had to take on that cross, the punishment we deserve so that we could receive the grace, the gift of eternal life that only he deserved. Amen? Jesus was, in fact, truly human. Let's pray.